Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In this edition of the podcast, we will be speaking with Brian J. Silverstein, M.D., one of seven prominent critical care leaders to present during the plenary sessions at the 35th Critical Care Congress, January 7th to 11th, 2006, in San Francisco, California. Dr. Silverstein is a vice president and national thought leader for SG2. In this capacity, he provides editorial direction for developing SG2 intelligence, decision tools, education, and custom consulting services. His expertise includes national healthcare trends, changing clinical practices, future care delivery models, medical technology innovation and adoption, and alignment of hospital and physician interests. In addition to having extensive knowledge of the U.S. healthcare environment, he has also had the opportunity to consult internationally in industrialized and developing markets. Dr. Silverstein will be giving a plenary lecture at the Critical Care Congress on Tuesday, January 10, 2006, from 1.30 to 2.20 p.m., entitled, Caring for Tomorrow's Critically Ill Patients. We get a chance to know him a little bit better today on the iCritical Care podcast. Good afternoon, Brian. Good afternoon, Rich. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm really glad uh, we had this chance to uh, speak with each other. Um, I thought we'd begin the interview by us getting to hear a little bit more about your personal story, perhaps starting out with how you ended up in consulting. Absolutely, Rich. And and I think everyone's life has an interesting journey and path, and I'm delighted to share mine with you. You know, back at a young age, I always had an interest in, in medicine. I actually became an EMT during college. I went to medical school, and one thing that I think in, in addition to my interest in medicine, I also had an interest in business. And my undergraduate degree actually is a BBA. Throughout my medical training, I I thoroughly enjoyed caring for patients and derived a lot of satisfaction from that. But I sensed that there was a a better use of my skills and a different calling. And so I did complete an internship. After my internship, I embarked upon a journey to look at different alternatives and options and found a home with a smaller management consulting firm. ZS Associates. I was there for a number of years before I switched over to my current role, which is in it with SG2, which although uh, we're a professional services firm, we're truly not a consulting firm. We're more of an advisory partner rather than a traditional consultancy. So was your plan um, either before or during medical school to have a career combining business and healthcare? I would say that that is that statement is accurate. I did have a plan to combine the two. 
the way that I think I originally envisioned combining the two was focusing on clinical care and then bringing in into my aspects of clinical care elements of business to be able to improve care. And I think that there was an opportunity for me to do that. I recognized a larger opportunity to impact more people by transitioning to the business world and then exerting my clinical influence in the business world. And then you mentioned something that I actually didn't understand, the difference between a consulting firm and an advisory firm or group. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. And SG2 is somewhat a, a unique organization or more of, a, you know, if, uh, using a, a category system that others might be familiar with, I'd put us more in a role of a think tank rather than a consulting firm. Traditional consulting firms work by a project-based nature, and they have groups of people that have frameworks, and the value proposition they'll bring to clients is they're applying their frameworks to client situations. And oftentimes they have familiarity in the areas, uh, in the business areas that that the different clients have questions in. Our group and our organization, the core of our organization, is our intelligence. You know, we have a group of physicians such as myself, some uh, board-certified, you know, very established physicians, Ph.D. researchers, as well as MBAs, MPHs. And so we really have a, a significant body of knowledge internally that we use that intellectual rigor to develop our own content, and then the content is what we offer to our membership rather, rather than just purely uh, frameworks. And, and so um, it, what would be then some of the sort of nuts and bolts differences? You would not get involved with a particular healthcare institution then, I guess, in improving their critical care organizational structure? Rich, we, we would do something like that, but I wouldn't say that's our core business. Our core business is the information and, that we have, and, we, and when you say get involved with them, absolutely we'd get involved with them. And the way that we would most typically like to get involved with them is we could share with an organization our findings around what we see as the future as critical care, some of the underlying assumptions to those findings, and then engage in dialogue and discussion around what's different in their marketplace that might makes a, that might require some modifications in our findings. And we do have a group within our organization that is a consulting group, and that group would be able to take a lot of our national thought leadership and have that local customization to it. And uh, just a couple other questions about your personal background and some thoughts on physicians uh, as consultants and in business is, uh, were there any questions in your mind about whether or not you were also going to combine your MD with an MBA, or, or what is your opinion on that? Is that something you're still thinking about pursuing? Uh, how does that uh, relate to your current position? Rich, I think the educational question regarding uh, additional degree, MBA, not MBA, that's that's a a very interesting topic to and to have a discussion about, and there certainly are advantages and disadvantages to that. In my unique situation, having a BBA, so it's not clearly not a master's degree, it's a bachelor's degree in business administration, I learned a lot of the fundamental skills during that training, and so the value proposition for me personally for an MBA isn't as great. So my personal decision is not to pursue that degree at this point in time. In general, I do think there is a tremendous value for all physicians to have some type of business training. Right. It comes up more and more frequently these days uh, in terms of physicians having to interact with administration and hospitals and be able to speak their language. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the MBA certainly is a, a significant commitment to get that training. There are simpler ways that clearly don't offer as much 
rigor associated with it, where still a physician can learn a little bit more about the business world. And can you also share with us a little bit, again, in a nuts and bolts fashion, what are some typical days for you like? Do you do a lot of travel as part of your particular job, or can you tell us more about that? Absolutely, Rich. So I'm sure when when asked this question, many the the standard response is there is no typical day, and and that that would be true for myself as well. I give you some examples of things that I do in in the course of business. The most common thing that I do is give different types of presentations and discussions throughout the country. So it does involve a significant amount of travel primarily to hospitals and healthcare systems, but also to state associations and to some medical device companies, manufacturers, investment firms, pretty much anyone involved in healthcare. And I'll share with them, depending upon what area they're trying to get involved in or interested in learning more about, our future vision and perspective regarding that, that clinical area. And you were saying, uh, or I was reading in your bio, that you've been with your current company, SG2, for for quite some time now. And uh, what are some of the other areas other than critical care that you focus in on, on this particular company? Or is critical care your focus with them? Our organization, so SG2, focuses on all of clinical care, clearly of which critical care is a critical component of. My specific role, I cover all of the areas as a cross-functional individual. We have content-specific teams, for example, in cardiology, surgery, orthopedics, neurosciences, etc. And each of those teams is led by either an MD or a PhD that will have a research team associated with that team to develop the content. In addition to the clinical teams, we also have functional teams, such as care delivery, lab, and, and facilities, and things of that nature. Okay. Um... I was going to take the next uh, section of the interview and have a discussion with you about critical care from the perspective of a consultant. And I apologize if I'm using the term consultant inappropriately, but that was the best word I could come up with. Uh, But certainly, uh, is that the right term to use? Are you a consultant? Rich, I guess it depends on how you want to define the term consultant. And I think that, that consultant, as far as someone who advises, absolutely that that's something that we are. I think of myself as a as a thought leader. And, and an advisor, so, right. An, an advisor. And, and that's truly, I think, where, you know, the core of, to elaborate on the earlier question, what I do in addition to my speaking, I interact with the different teams to have... Uh, discussions about the types of research agendas I think we should pursue. I review the content material that they develop. And then we have members, and so our members will call with questions. And oftentimes I'll engage in dialogue and discussion with our members regarding their questions. Um, And along those lines, uh, and again, from reading about you, you seem to have a perspective above above it all, seeing how multiple institutions attack the same problems. And I was wondering if you could share with the members of SCCM some of your perspectives, having seen how multiple institutions grapple with similar problems. And again, as as you and I discussed previously, are there some common themes that you've seen throughout organizations or perhaps specific issues that you've seen more in large hospitals versus small hospitals? Perhaps share with us some of your unique perspective on that. Absolutely, Rich. And I think Anyone who's a physician is familiar with the fact that different institutions do it differently. 
you went to medical school in one place, did your residence training in perhaps a second location, and then did a fellowship perhaps in a third location. And even within a training program, maybe you visited different sites. And so I think people in general, physicians in general, do inherently understand that difference. Going through my training, I don't think I had as deep of an understanding of the variants as I do now. You know, having visited hundreds of different hospitals and just seeing truly the the amount of different ways the same problem can be approached and the different systems that are in place, it's astounding. And at the same time, there are commonalities that do exist throughout different types of organizations, and it's something that... You, as you see more and more variation, then you develop, begin to develop segments, and so you can then classify you know, different hospitals or entities into these different segments. And uh, again, you know, in, in hearing you speak just now, I'm reminded again of the constant comparison between healthcare and the uh, airline industry, where there's very, very strict ways in which certain things can be done. But again, as you pointed out and seen much more than I have, but even in my personal experience, there can be tremendous variation in organizational structures. And uh, have you seen ways uh, that you think that are genuinely better than others? And, and how about some of the challenges of trying to get institutions to, institutions to change, which I would imagine is a, is a huge part of your life? Rich, I think, I think you've probably hit one of the key questions, which was the second question they asked, which is getting institutions to change. And that really, I think, is some of the essence of what we try and do at SG2, which is Throughout seeing a lot of the different variation, there certainly are elements that are good and bad. And, it, and part of the challenge in getting institutions to change is having a future vision. And if you just, for example, were to do a survey and come up with, quote, unquote, best practices, by the time you're able to take those best practices and propagate them throughout clinical care, getting that energy for change that's required, those best practices are outdated. And so what we try and focus on instead of best practices are leading practices. So what do we see that not, maybe it is important today, maybe it's not important today, but it's going to be important tomorrow. And then how can we work with the clinical leadership as well as the administrative leadership at different facilities to understand of those leading practices, which ones are going to be the ones that are important for that market, that institution, that are really going to make that difference? And so I guess from what you're saying is there isn't a right answer. And again, it's part of the individualization of healthcare that what's right for this institution may not be right for another institution, but there clearly is a best way for that particular institution or better than what their current situation is. Rich, I would, I would say there, that I, I, I'm an optimist and I believe there's always opportunities for improvement. And so I think almost any entity even one that has excellent systems, there, there are opportunities for improvement. Clearly, the size of that opportunity is going to be small in some places, and it's going to be large in others. And um, just to ask the, the question, I guess, a second time, is do you have any specific uh, thoughts to share where uh, you, you went into a place and it was less frustrating or more frustrating or things where you saw something in one place and wanted to bring it to another place? It must be tough, right, because another place doesn't want to hear, well, you should be doing it more like this place because it seems to work there. It depends on the, uh, the administrative leadership, I guess, right? Absolutely, Rich. And it's not just the administrative leadership. A lot of it is the physician climate. It's the, it's 
it's a culture that exists in an institution. And Rich, why don't I share with you, you know, you brought up the airline industry. And why don't I share with you an example from the airline industry that's happened in clinical practice. And, and the example I'm using here is from an academic medical center, but I'd like to predicate that with saying a lot of innovation we see is actually in community hospitals where there isn't as much um, framework and rigor and where innovation, it, it sometimes creates a, a more um, a more fostering environment, but the example I am going to share with you is from an academic medical center, and it has to, and the innovation is a daily goals checklist, and it's as simple as a piece of paper, and this was started at Hopkins, that indicates for every patient every day what are we trying to do with that patient. It makes sure nothing gets missed. It makes sure that the whole team is on the same page. It's shared with the patient, if possible, obviously, and the family members, all of the consulting physicians are familiar with it, and so it really brings about that organizational alignment. Culturally, it's a very different way of approaching care, and so many institutions are resistant to having that, although many aren't familiar with it. And as soon as they learn about it and learn about the benefits of having that daily goals checklist, they adopt it very rigorously. What are uh, some of the, or perhaps even an example, uh, that you've learned uh, through your experience to help uh, ease change in institutions. I know in my personal experience, things like getting ARDSNET implemented, getting the Surviving Sepsis Campaign implemented, uh, and again, where you're trying to implement evidence-based medicine versus experience-based medicine can often be a great challenge. Rich, I think you highlighted a big a big divide, the evidence versus experience, and that that's typically where when there's an a process that's being implemented that is um, that is contentious, then that's that's the divide. It's in my experience, this is what I've seen. Well, and here's what you know. We're looking at evidence. Here's what this sees, and and I think the the daily goals checklist. Part of the reason why I brought that up in the airlines that that's taken from the airline industry, and the airline industry they have checklists and they go through these and checklists and these checklists enable to make sure that things don't get. There's not mistakes that are made and things don't get overlooked. How do you do that in a clinical arena? I think the key thing is involving physicians because there's no way to underestimate the value that physicians bring to patient care and the value that physicians can bring to administration. I often view the challenge as a translation challenge. And so there's different languages that people are speaking and people are coming sometimes from different perspectives. And so one thing that I try and do is, is when I'm talking to a clinical audience, explain to them the benefits of a process in a language that they can understand. And when I'm talking to an administrative office, uh, administrative audience, explain to them the physician's perspective so they could understand a way to be able to bring ideas to the table that are going to be more well, likely to be well-received. And there's a uh... I mean, that's one of your gifts is to be able to go back and forth between those two worlds. That's often a tremendous challenge for physicians as, as we're all learning. You know, it really is. And it's, it, and it's so incredibly gratifying for me, especially on a large scale or even on a small scale basis, to be involved in a project or be involved with a member and, and be able to have, and have there be some ideas that the physicians have, but they're just having a hard time articulating it to the administrative team, or the administrative team wants to do something different. They're having some challenges with the physician team and being able to bring those groups together. And it's something that in clinical care in general, there's not enough collaboration. And, you know, there's, a, there's one specialty in clinical care that has figured that out, and 
that specialty really has transformed their care in the past 20 years, and I view them as, as a goal that every clinical specialty should uh, have a, a viewpoint as far as we want to achieve this, this objective. And, and I, I guess I misunderstood you. Were you saying who, who had changed in the last 20 years? I'm not sure I understood that. I, I didn't give the, the answer. It's the anesthesiologist. Oh, okay. And so the close cousin <laughs> of, the, of the critical care specialist. And the anesthesiologist, if you remember anesthesiology you know, 20 years ago, the risk of death due to anesthesia was 1 in 5,000. And now that same risk is 1 in 200,000 to 1 in 300,000. And if you look at how did the anesthesiologists do it, what did they do? Well, some of the things they did were process. And so they came up with different ways that they would do things that all were going to be the same. Some were technology, such as end-tidal CO2 monitors. But the net result is surgery is a lot safer. Not only is that a better value proposition for the anesthesiologist because there's going to be more surgery because people are going to want to have surgery because it's less likely you're going to die, they feel better about it. It's, you're able to do a better job at your clinical care. And it's amazing how that has actually resulted in their malpractice premiums are actually less. Well, and, and again, uh, my particular fellowship had a significant amount of anesthesiology training in it as well. And again, they do use the analogy themselves as a well-done anesthesia, as a takeoff, you know, mid-flight and landing as well. So many, many areas where there's similarities. But again, you've also heard clinicians tell you they don't like all these checklists and their cookbook and, you know, you know that's not why I went to medical school. And so, you know, I, I, we all deal with this uh, ourselves and it's very difficult, as, as I'm sure you're well aware. Absolutely, Rich. And part of the way I look at this, too, is, is taking a, a viewpoint from the manufacturing industry. And, and Dell Computers is, is, I think, the a great example here. You know, Dell Computers and anyone who's ordered a computer from Dell, if you go on their website, there literally are thousands of different possibilities for you to order the computer. And so they have so much variation. But what they do is they make sure every computer is exactly what you order which is mind-boggling when you think about it. And the way they do that is they have a process. And so what it's implying is that having a process doesn't necessarily have to constrain you, and it doesn't mean there can't be variation. It just means there should be a common thought process or methodology. Leading to uniformity in product. Exactly. And, and Rich, I think that's the key thing is that uniformity in product. And something that in clinical care hasn't really been a focus or an endpoint, but I, we believe as you look towards the future, that is going to be something that will be critical. We're sort of in the last phase of the interview now and kind of winding things up um, and probably not going to have a chance to talk about everything we wanted to talk about, which is okay. So we can go hear your talk and learn all the details. But I did want to ask you one question in the third phase of the interview in terms of what you see as some of the major challenges for caring for tomorrow's critically ill patients. And that was an important point uh, you mentioned to me previously. Obviously, there's going to, from what everybody can tell, be some increase in demand for critical care services, that there's this increasing problem of gridlock that we deal with every day. I'm dealing with it today. And one of the points, if I think I read your information correctly, was that increasing the number of beds per se was not a super way of dealing with that. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that's not such a great way to deal with it and what are some ways that institutions can try and optimize their current critical care services. And I'm well aware that that's like a three-hour talk, but just a, a couple high points if you could. Uh, absolutely, Rich. And before anyone 
decides to show up at, at the talk and throw eggs at me for saying that adding beds isn't a good idea, then let's let I think we should temp, we should we should put that into context. And and there's no doubt that the population is aging. That's that's obvious. But when you look just at the aging population, it only gives you part of the picture. You also have to look at how disease and care is changing. And there's no doubt as well that disease is becoming more significant and that the type of care you're giving is more intense, which has resulted in, in many areas, this gridlock that you bring up, that we don't have enough critical care beds. And so the knee-jerk reaction when we don't have enough critical care beds is we need to build more beds. And at a million dollars a bed, that's an expensive solution. Albeit it is a solution, it's an expensive solution. What we found looking at different hospitals and institutions is by doing things in a different way, you can create capacity. For example, there's an institution that we were working with, and they, they had the gridlock situation. And what we discovered, actually, is that their they, A, didn't have enough telemetry beds, and B, there wasn't a level of trust on the floors with the floor nursing. And so consequently, if a physician had a patient that they felt was a marginal patient, immediately they'd want that patient to be in a critical care unit and to get a more intensive monitoring where if the floor nursing was better, that wouldn't have been required. And so building a bed is a solution, but it's the it, it's not actually getting at the root of the problem. So again, bringing the care to the patient, rapid response teams, a lot of these novel uh, critical care solutions, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's, you know, in addition to that, there's other technologies, clinical practices, ways of looking at, at care differently that will ultimately temper a lot of the demand, especially remote patient monitoring, uh, different types of testing, as well as different ways of doing surgery. You know, let me give you an example. If you're doing an open surgical procedure, someone's going to end up, and if it's a, you know an abdominal procedure, they're going to end up in a critical care unit. If all of a sudden you can do that procedure in a less invasive manner and not less invasive from a marketing, I'm going to make a smaller incision, but truly you're going to take an endovascular approach, et cetera. So now all of a sudden that patient doesn't require critical care monitoring. We've been speaking with Brian J. Silverstein, a vice president and national thought leader for SG2. And I just want to say personally, Brian, I really had a great time today. I'm definitely going to go to your talk, and I'm truly glad I had an opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you, Rich. I really uh, appreciate that endorsement, and I'm honored that the SCCM has invited me to come and share some of our research and thoughts with this very esteemed group, and I, I look really looking forward to it. We'll see you in San Francisco. Thanks again. Absolutely. This concludes our podcast. Don't miss Dr. Silverstein's plenary speech on Tuesday, January 10th, 2006, from 1.30 to 2.20 p.m., entitled Caring for Tomorrow's Critically Ill Patients During the 35th Critical Care Congress in San Francisco, California. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with other prominent members of the critical care community. Please check out the podcast website at www.sccm.org slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. Registration is open for SCCM's 35th Critical Care Congress. Please note the date and location change to January 7th through 11th, 2006 at the San Francisco Masconi West Convention Center. Learn innovative treatments in critical care as well as fundamental business practices to improve your ICU environment, all developed by a multi-professional team of critical care experts.
Register today by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org. Don't miss out on this unsurpassed educational opportunity in beautiful San Francisco, California.